0: I wanted to talk about vow, seems appropriate this weekend, and suffering. <coughs> I always feel like, you know, for myself, that I'm, I'm continually returning to the First Noble Truth because the way I understood it when I started and the way I understand it at other points and the way I understand it now keeps changing. And the depth of it changes. I think in the beginning, it was something that was almost treated like a checkbox. Yes, there is suffering. Next, how do I get out? (laughs) (laughs) And, um, And I didn't necessarily stay with it. Kind of the way we can treat food. Food, time to eat. But the miracle of food, being on a table, is missed. And the Buddha giving us this, drawing our attention to that there is suffering, full stop. And some of the, you know, the critiques of like, oh, that's a downer. Why (laughs) focus on that? There's also good things. True true that there are also good things and there's joy and there's happiness and all of that in human life. But our spiritual strength comes from first accepting suffering. Without that, very shallow. And um, to watch that our minds our convictions will wrestle with that. I don't really want to go into the place of pain. I want to find a way around it. I don't want to be with grief. I want to do something else. I don't... I can't possibly... and all of this is... I no criticism here. I, I cannot take in the pain of the world. It's just too much. And so much of what we do, you've heard, is build capacity for this is build capacity for the full reception of the First Noble Truth. To fully receive it. And interestingly, we have to kind of do the other stuff to return back and receive it more deeply, and then we have to practice for a few years and then go back and receive it more deeply. And there is, you know, the Our own freedom from the unnecessary generation of suffering for ourselves never does away with the fact that there is suffering in the world. In fact, our own freedom from the generation of suffering for ourselves opens up the receiving of the suffering of the world. As soon as we're, you know, when, when we're no longer doing it to ourselves, the heart's now available for the suffering of everyone. For the dukkha that's being created for everyone. It allows the heart to be, because it's time isn't being taken up by all the stuff I'm doing to my poor heart. It's been just treading water, trying to keep up with everything I'm throwing at it and everything that has been thrown at me, that I keep throwing back at it. So, when that quiets, then this heart is available for that. But, the um... It can be too much. And then, we fall into, we can fall into... It's hopeless. We can fall into, well, if everything is, if there's suffering, and then nothing matters. Because in some ways, right, the, 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 um, if we're focused really on ourselves, there's no good way out, you know, because it is pretty much hopeless. We're all going to die, right? By definition, if we're focused on that. By definition, human life is hopeless. We're heading toward death every one of us. There is nothing that is going to be done about that. And the mind, the egoic mind can immediately go to well then nothing matters. If it's hopeless in that sense then nothing matters. Of course we're not individual beings. What we are is much greater than our own life and death. But The mind of ego will reduce everything to my own sustainability. To actually fully take in, because the Buddha didn't just ask us to, to consider dukkha, he asked us to consider impermanence. To fully take in impermanence, to not resist impermanence. To allow that to be the ground to allow dukkha, our recognition of dukkha in the world, to be the ground. Again, our mind can say, well, this is hopeless. Nothing's lasting. I'm heading toward my death. And Buddhism, in some ways, doesn't really focus on hope very much. In fact, there are two (coughs) ways we talk about hope, and I want to distinguish them. Because I think in this moment in time, the ground of suffering is really important for us to find strength. Accepting the ground of suffering is really important to find the strength we need in this time. And the, um, we talk about hope in two ways, and one the Buddhist tradition would just kind of toss out as delusional. For example. I hope that something will happen in accord with the way I would like it to happen. That hope, not so helpful. It's an attachment to a future that doesn't exist, that we wrap ourselves around and cause ourselves a great deal of anxiety and misery. But it's not the only way we talk about hope. The other way we talk about hope is the first flower at the end of winter or when a child is born, or when someone is ordained, that there it brings hope into the world. But that kind of hope isn't attached to a particular outcome. It's more like it connects us, it reconnects us to potentiality, to possibility. That seems to be necessary for us to survive. We don't do well without potentiality. In fact, you know, we, I talked about this before. We need the very notion of future generations to be alive. We're dependent on them. In this moment we're dependent on the very idea of them to be alive. And so this potentiality is something that is important, but the way Buddhism comes at that is, is very interesting because it's not about oh, how do I find hope again? If, that, if, if something is so painfully overwhelming that we feel that energy drain out of us and we can't find our way back to it again, it isn't by manufacturing some idea that's going to make us excited about the future again. That's going to last a minute. We're going to find ourselves right back where we were. Right? To manufacture a hopeful idea, very, very weak solution to the reality of the world. Instead, where Buddhism tends to go is Vow. Right? Which is to recommit ourselves to that which builds that energy back. That which actually builds character and capacity and ability to meet suffering without collapsing. Right? To take up practices, to sit meditation and so on, but for our hearts to reconnect to Vow Now, the paramitas, technically, are not vows. I treat them that way, but we don't necessarily vow the paramitas, but I want to include them here because I think they're a really useful pathway to understand what it is to deepen this potentiality that isn't about a kind of more shallow or saccharine notion of to be hopeful, right, but to actually deepen the that in us because what are we asked to do right we're asked to cultivate generosity so it's interesting for me when i'm feeling depleted or there's a sense of hopelessness which one of the paramitas are the ones that i need to look at usually all of them but which are the ones that i need to kind of bring my attention to because If I am committed to coming back to generosity when I don't feel that energy, and I'm committed to coming back to looking at, okay, what are... So just for those of you who don't know, the six paramitas as we understand them are generosity. That's the first one. The Buddha said for lay people, generosity is the entry. That's the thing you practice first. Because it, among many other things, like caring for the community, it also goes right after self-attachment. And then we're asked to look at behavioral discipline, morality, shila. Like, what is, what is our behavior in this current time? Is it wholesome? Am I treating myself with wholesomeness or am I doing things that are destructive? The third one is patience. Fourth is, is virya, which is translated as many things, energy, enthusiasm. It's, it's related to words like virile and vigor. So it's a kind of, bod, it has a bodily component to it. Right. so there's the energy of our practice, and then there is um, concentration or meditation, the fifth one, and then finally wisdom, which is often seen as the fruits of the, the fruit of the other five. that also feeds back into it so when we're, when we're in a situation of feeling And this is all easier said than done, but it gives us just some things to look at. If there's despair or if there's a lack of energy, to look at generosity and ask, what's going on? Am I being generous with myself in this moment? Or is judgmental mind and shoulds running the show, and am I being exhausted by my own mind? Am I being generous with other people right now? What is happening in that situation? Because generosity, for the first The first flower of spring requires the generosity of the entire Earth. And our own... our own illumination requires that generosity. Our own lifting of our life, of our capacities, of our heart to meet the world requires generosity, requires the cultivation of generosity that and then to look at what happens with our um i I always cringe a little bit at the translation of the word moral just because of its baggage but but to look at the way that we are treating ourselves in the world in terms of behavioral discipline are we disciplining the mind not to treat ourselves with cruelty not to feed doubt not to um, be involved, because if we're doing it to ourselves, we're doing it to others. If we're doing it to others, we're doing it to ourselves. And, um, and to really note the way that we are framing life. Speech is a big part of it, including thoughts in just, as just internal speech. How are we talking to ourselves? How are we involving? What are we doing in that moment? To look at it and just ask what's wholesome, and what are we doing during the day? which really feeds in actually to, to um, well, that's the fourth one. I'm gonna talk about energy and virya too. And then patience. Am I patient with myself in the world? Am I patient with what's going on? It doesn't mean that we're just accepting it outright and we're saying it's okay and we're writing it off, but that I think of Laura and, and all the gardening she's been doing over the summer. The amount of patience that require, is required just to wait for something to bloom. We don't know when it's going to happen. We don't know when we're going to transform. We don't know when the world's going to transform. We don't know where it's going. It can be frightening. But to have the patience to know that we don't know. And to... Um, and to be with that with our hearts, and to know that everybody is acting from karma, not from evil, not from some evil center to them, but from their own karmic conditioning. How then do we meet that from patience? And then we move into Virya. I, I really think that this is one of the most under, maybe it's my own karma that I think this, yes, likely so. Um, <laughs> One of the most underappreciated of the Paramitas, which is to understand energy as a moral category. To understand the care for our energy. This is so important when it comes to things like hope and hopelessness, and being able to meet the suffering of the world fully. If we are not caring for our own energy, if we are not caring for the spiritual energy, if we're not attending to the ways that we're depleted, we cannot meet the world. It's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. And then what tends to happen when we're depleted and we're not attending to it with care is that our views begin to shift because we're too exhausted to meet it. So then all of a sudden our views become much more negative, much more overwhelmed, much more impossible, and we're wondering why we're so down and we can't get ourselves out of it. And then we have the idea, oh, what needs to happen is I just need to change my view, or I need it, no, you need rest. Or if there's emotional, if there's a kind of emotional labor that's going on, maybe you need something creative that brings creative energy back into your life, that meets all of that emotional energy that's been taken. Right? We, don't, we have to check in all the time with energy, You know, we're always really good at nuancing and teaching the things we've most failed at. So I could talk to you all day about Virya. Because I've so thoroughly failed at it. But um, And then concentration and meditation. We must put in the time for the mind to settle. We have to do it. We have to put in the time. We have to care for the mind, heart, and body in a way that allows it to quiet. Like all of you are doing. Just gather and quiet. And yes, sometimes quieting feels like a thousand demons screaming. But I promise you, it's quieting. Sometimes because oftentimes the quieting of the mind, the quieting of the body and mind, it releases all of the things that are disallowing and settling. And so you suddenly become conscious of it all. We all suddenly become conscious of all of these things that we've been walking past, running past. We sit down and here they come. And the, the, the response is, "My mind has been quiet all day." just because it hasn't been quiet doesn't mean it's not quieting. Right. Sometimes the noisiest mind is the mind that's quieting the fastest. And then every once in a while we get these great gifts where we sit down and everything's just quiet and settled. Good for us. It won't keep going. <laughs> because life will be life. And life is hard. So, so there's that. And from all of that which is happening in the body, from the work with generosity and that which makes it difficult, the work with our wholesome behavior and that which makes it difficult, patience and that which makes it difficult, energy and that which makes it difficult, concentration and meditation and that which makes it difficult, from that and the difficulties comes wisdom. Prajna embodied wisdom, not intellectual wisdom, not intellectual knowing, embodied wisdom that arises from practice, that begins to come forward and comes forward from the heart. And so when this is happening, when we're meeting suffering, we return to paramitas, we return to our vows, to the precepts, we return to these things to begin to build to not begin, to, to continue building the capacity to meet and transform the world. Not to resist it. To be engaged in transformation. Now, one thing is we have to remember our vows. Right? We have to be involved in a process of knowing our vows, studying our vows, remembering our vows. And it, and how we remember our vows is important. Because there is a, um, we, could, we recite them over and over in the full moon ceremony. Maybe we check in with them each day. Maybe we even have the precepts on our fridge. Whatever it is to keep them, but to keep them in our hearts. There is a, um, In English, we use the word, remember. In Spanish, you use the word, recordar. Probably the same in Portuguese, right? (laughs) Recordar is the root, the root is heart. It's something that is remembered. You remember with the heart. Now, this comes from, is an interesting thing that comes from a split in the meaning in Latin originally. Recordar was, was used for one part of memory and memoir was used for the other. Remember was to bring something to mind, right? I bring it back into my mind, into my conscious mind. Recordar was committing it to memory, right? So it's kind of really important difference because in the original language, it understood that the place where you commit the memory is the heart and you bring it from the heart into the conscious mind. That is what it is to remember something. But you don't commit it to memory. You don't commit it to the mind part. You commit to the heart, if you want it to last. Otherwise, it's going to be fleeting. So when we sit, In some ways Zazen can be understood, it can be understood in many ways. But in one way that Zazen could be understood is that we are committing the world to our hearts. When we are allowing everything to rise and fall, we're not grasping on to anything, it doesn't mean that it doesn't matter, because we're letting it come and go or because we're not grasping onto it. We're actually not grasping onto it, so the mind mind that grasps, the thing that Buddha told us was the cause of all dukkha, the mind that grasps can release, which then releases our heart to do its job, which is commit the whole world to it. Commit itself to the whole world, commit the whole world to it. Can I live every moment of my life committing the entire world to my heart? Everything that is arising, I'm committing to my heart. Then, the interesting thing about this practice is all the noise that gets in the way of that, that makes it difficult to do. We start seeing, if that becomes our intention, we start seeing all of the things that make that really difficult. Right? I can't commit this to heart. Not this one. I don't even want to admit this one's here. Or I don't want to take this one in. Okay, we're not ready to take that one in yet. So we commit our inability to take it in to our hearts. That's the thing we commit to our hearts. Right now I'm feeling tender about the fact that I am not able to take this in. This is too much. And so then there is our suffering with the suffering. And that can be in our hearts. And that will open the heart. Right? We have all kinds of sophisticated defenses against pain. Usually because there's some pains back there that we aren't quite ready for yet. And so we're defended against those pains which then defends us against the pains of the world because it all feels like too much. Until this pain is felt through and metabolized. And then the heart can open up to pain because it's learned from integrating our own pain, integrating our own heartbreak. When the heart integrates our own heartbreak, then it knows how to integrate the world's heartbreak. But all of this is built, in my experience, built over time from a heart-centered zazen. From a zazen that is organized around the heart, that is organized around the heart's knowing. This is the center of our city. We drop the mind into the hara and, and ground it because this just needs to quiet down. And the hara is moving at the bottom of the ocean, it's moving at a very different speed. It's moving at the speed of the molten center of the earth, it's much quieter. So, we drop this down so that energy can quiet. But the center of our spiritual being is here. I mean, Shin is where everything is organized around for our tradition. Right? So, to sit with the heart, we'll drop the mind here and anchor and stabilize. And let ourselves be ground. So that this can come forward. (coughs) And we can know from that place. So, vow. vow is committing that which most cares for our liberation to our hearts. and our way of doing this, that which most cares for our liberation and the liberation of all beings, which is also compassionate for ourselves and compassion for all beings, which means acting acting in a way, not just watching, acting in a way that relieves that suffering. All of that together, liberation, compassion, acting to relieve suffering, all of that coming together, that is the thing, that is what we're committing to heart. And we commit these various vows, not killing, not stealing, etc. Living for what is good, living for the liberation of all beings, we commit these to vows so that that is where we come from, that we live from vow eventually, over time, if we're with this practice a while, our life is to live from vow. But vow is really nothing more, because we come from a Buddha nature school, vow is really nothing more than the clarified heart. All the scaffolding that has blocked it has been taken down, the heart is liberated, comes to life and we can live from the hardened path. It's now the center of our activity. It's the center of our voices. It's the center of the way we speak. It's the thing that is fueling what we are. It's our very presence. And so I'll, I'll, I'll stop and see if you all have some thoughts that I just want to encourage two things. Sitting with the heart at the center so that all of everything in each of us that resists love becomes known so that we can see it clearly and skillfully work with it with each other a Sangha, with our teachers, whatever that is, that is one piece. The other piece is, when it seems overwhelming, when it seems like too much, and it drops into despair, and it drops into hopelessness, ask, go back to the Dharma, go back to the Paramitas, go back to the practices, and just ask a few simple questions, which is, how am I taking care of myself in this moment? How am I actually, caring for my own generosity, for my own wholesomeness, for my own um, patience and energy and meditation practice and so on. How How am I caring for the capacities that give me the strength to meet suffering? Because we cannot just will it. It is too big. We have to care for the capacities that make it possible And we have to compare, we have to care for those capacities in communities of people who have the same intentions to care for those capacities. You all care for my capacities by mirroring me. You care for my capacities because you care for yours. And then I'm inspired by that. And that keeps me going. I'm inspired by Sangha, and Sangha is that which allows me to continue if I were doing this on my own, it would have gone a long time ago. It would have fallen over. And to appreciate each other for that. So I'll stop there. May our intention equally penetrate Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.